This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. You can find it in the Blue Pew Bible on page 954 at the bottom. Once again, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. First Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the... Uh, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for this word as it was just read. And now we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and accompany the preaching of that word that your church might, build, might be built up. Lord, May you come and give the growth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, over the last month, we have been as a church in a sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling this series A Letter to a Troubled Church. And so far, we have seen a lot of trouble in the Corinthian church, especially as it relates to divisions and factions forming within the congregation. And that had been the focus of chapters 1 all the way to 4. 
all about division within the church. And now, starting in chapter 5, we're introduced to even more troubles, more issues facing the church. And I know all of it can feel overwhelming. Some people might conclude that the church is hopeless. If one of the earliest churches founded by the Apostle Paul himself has this much trouble functioning as a healthy, loving community, then what hope is there for the church today? That's why some say they want little to do with the church anymore. They've been hurt in the past. They've they've had bad experiences with troubled churches. And so 1 Corinthians just confirms their fears of what might happen again if they were to deeply invest themselves into the life of another church. And if that describes you, if that's where you're coming from, then I want you to know, first of all, that I, I grieve for you and for the painful experience that you've had in past churches. Now, the, by, by, by the mere fact that you're here, I'm going to assume that you're not completely done with the church, and that's encouraging. But I'm not surprised if you're hesitant to deeply involve yourself again, to, to really open yourself up again to a church. I get it if you would rather keep your interactions with people here kind of on the surface. I, I understand if, if you'd rather not commit yourself to any church in any formal way. But friend, my concern here though, my concern for you, is that if you're just scratching the surface in your relationships here at this church, my concern is that if, if you're not deeply engaged and connected with other believers, then you're not going to experience the life transformation that is actually offered us in the gospel. That you're gonna be missing out on what the Christian life really is meant to be. I mean, look, you, you can just, you could take a handful of rough stones and you can just line them up next to each other once a week, putting a bunch of rough stones seated next to each other once a week, and they can be in regular proximity to one another, but if they're just sitting there, if there's no, no close interaction happening between them, then nothing's gonna change. They're just going to stay the same. If you want those stones to be polished, like if you want those rough edges to be smoothed out, then you, if you want to see some noticeable change, then you're going to have to put those stones into a tumbler. And you add some water, you add some grit, and you let those stones tumble around with each other for a while, rubbing up against each other for a good while. And the result coming out of that is going to be smooth, polished stones. Well, friends, I think in the same way, just showing up here on Sundays, just lining up, sitting next to each other, that's not enough. It's not enough. We need to be connected to each other. We need to be in each other's lives. We need to be smoothing out each other's rough edges. And I know at times that's going to be uncomfortable. It might get a little awkward. Some of these relationships might even hurt. But that's how we experience life transformation within the local church. That's how we get polished into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in this morning's text, the Apostle Paul is going to address a practical way in which all of this tumbling and polishing in the life of the church gets worked out. He's going to talk about the healthy practice of corrective church discipline. 
That's one way in which we tumble around with each other and we, we smooth out each other's rough edges. Corrective church discipline. Now, I know that term right there, just saying it, church discipline. That, that, that might sound for you very harsh. It might sound pretty archaic. You're, you're wondering, when churches still do that these days? I mean, isn't that like, you know, what the ancient, you know, medieval church used to do, excommunicating people left and right? I mean, we're, we're still talking about that today? Well, actually, I, I'm, I, I would argue that Scripture presents discipline as something as normative in the life of the church as discipleship. I don't think anyone here would argue about discipleship happening in our church. We, we want discipleship to happen. But did you notice, did you notice the common root between those two words? Discipleship and discipline? The common root word there has to do with education. And just think about that. Think, think about how, how in education, there's always an element of instruction as well as correction. So just think back to when your kindergarten teacher taught you how to write your name, right? She showed you how to hold your pencil, you know, how to write your letters. She was, in a sense, discipling you in handwriting. She, she was giving you instruction at that moment. Now, when it was your turn to finally take, to take a turn at, at, at writing out your name, if she never corrected your, your five-finger grip on that pencil, if she never corrected your, your backwards J, well, then, you know, she would be actually failing to disciple you. She's not actually teaching you it's because both instruction and correction is vital if you are ever to master the discipline of handwriting. I think in the same way, for you to grow up into the image of your master, the Lord Jesus, then what you need is both instructive and corrective discipline. Now, in the life of the church, instructive discipline is something you're more familiar with. It, it has to do with all of the ordinary means of grace. It, it involves gathering regularly for corporate worship, you know, sitting under the, the right preaching of God's word. It's, uh, it's about a teaching and discipling each other, you know, counseling and praying for one another. I mean, these things you probably expected. It's normal to you. You would expect to experience these things in the life of the church. But a church also, if it wants to be healthy, if it wants to disciple its people, will at times need to exercise corrective discipline. And that's where an individual believer or the church as a whole confronts another church member who remains in a pattern of sin, calling that person to repentance, calling that person to turn away from sin and to trust in the Lord and what he has done for our sins. And if they refuse to turn away from that sin, if they continue in that pattern, well, then eventually they may be removed from the church. But always with the goal of restoration, restoring the individual's damaged witness or at the same time restoring any damaged relationships that there might be either with God or with fellow church members. That, my friends, is what we're going to be talking about this morning because that's what's in the text this morning. If you want to develop, if you care about developing here at HCC a culture of discipleship, then you equally need a culture of discipline. That's our argument today. Now, for, for that kind of culture to take root, 
Paul is going to lay out for us three expectations for that church. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. What this means is that as a church, there's an expectation that we're doing three things. First, we're disciplining each other out of redeeming love. Second, we're exhorting each other to become who we really are. And third, we're judging each other for the purity of our witness. All right, so let's consider the first expectation for a healthy church that has a robust culture of discipleship. In that church, what you're going to find, what you're going to see is church members disciplining disciplining each other out of redeeming love. We'll see this taught in verses 1 to 5 of our text this morning. Now, before we jump into that, though, let's recall what came before chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, what we've looked at in the past few weeks. We saw how one of the primary problems in the church of Corinth was their spiritual pride. There were these factions, as we said, growing up and dividing the church. And some in the church were boasting that they were more spiritual than others. They were spiritually proud. They were spiritually arrogant. And yet at the same time, this proud church so easily tolerates sin in their midst. In verse 1, Paul mentions an egregious form of sexual immorality in their midst that they have just simply turned a blind eye to. And that just baffles him to how you can be so spiritually arrogant and yet ignore this problem in your church. So listen to verses 1 to 2 again. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't you be grieving the state of things in your church? Now, as we'll see, the sin in question here really is serious. And the offender needs to be immediately disciplined. But notice how Paul's gripe is, his gripe is directed more at the congregation than at the culprit. Right? He's shocked that they have neglected to discipline this man and that they continue to treat him as a member in good standing. It's not only a failure to love your brother as yourself, it's a failure to protect your brother from himself. And at the same time, what's worse, it's a failure to protect the honor of God's name. Remember in chapter 3, Paul had said that the church is the new covenant temple of God, that we collectively, as the people of God, we are the church now. I mean, we we are the temple now. We are God's temple. And so to tolerate unrepentant sin in our midst is really to desecrate God's temple and to defame his name. That's how serious this is. This is serious business that requires a swift response. And so look back at verse 2. Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Removing him from the church, removing him from the membership of the church. Now, the sin is described by Paul as a sexual immorality. And in his letters, that that term there is just this blanket term that covers any, any expression of sexual activity outside of biblical marriage. Biblical marriage between one man and one woman. Any kind of sexual activity outside of those bounds is found under this category of sexual immorality. Now in this case, there apparently was a man in the church who was in an ongoing incestuous sexual relationship with his father's wife. 
Now, that's not referring to the man's birth mother. This is talking about his stepmother. And it's unclear if his father uh, is still alive and still married to this woman, or perhaps uh, she's already been divorced by his father, or she's been widowed. It's not clear about that situation. But what is clear is that regardless of the particulars of their situation, both ancient Jews and ancient Gentiles forbid a father and a son to have sexual relations with the same woman. That would have been considered incest, both according to Old Testament law and to Roman law. Everyone would have looked down on that. Everyone would have condemned that kind of behavior. And so what's so disturbing for Paul is the fact that this church was tolerating what was not even tolerated by the pagans, by the non-Christian world around them. You have to understand, first century Greco-Roman world, Greco-Roman society, it was the furthest thing from being prudish when it comes to sex. I mean, their level of, of sexual promiscuity and permissiveness would rival our culture today. You could argue even going further than us today. And yet this man's behavior was scandalous, even according to the loose non-Christian standards of his own day. Now, friends, if you, should, if you think about that, it should make us all the more grateful for the common grace of God that even the non-believing world still maintains certain moral standards. I mean, no matter how much someone may argue, you know, theoretically for moral relativism, thank God no one actually lives that way. No one is actually consistent in living out their theories. Even today, while so much of what Scripture describes as sexually, sexually immoral, it has been normalized and it has been celebrated by our culture. Thank God that at least there are some sexual sins that both Christians and non-Christians today would equally condemn. Thank God that our culture would still oppose all forms of sexual abuse, most forms of incest, and everyone... Uh, and, 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 e and even most cases of adultery. And I know adultery is, is so common nowadays, but everyone would still tend to sympathize with the victimized spouse in those situations. And I think very few would try to justify the behavior of the adulterer. So even though it's very common, it's still, it's still condemned in, 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 in the eyes of our society. So I think there is, there is still some common ground. And again, that's owing to God's grace. We should be thankful. But let's be clear here. Let's be clear. The church does not take its cues from the culture. And so we're not saying here that the church should only exercise discipline in cases of sin that would equally offend the culture around us. No, there are going to be plenty of sins that we should be correcting. We should be disciplining as a church simply because scripture demands it. And the culture is going to be offended, not by that sin, but by the fact that we're doing something about it. That we're actually calling it sin and trying to correct it. That's, that's going to cause offense in the eyes of our culture today. But again... Thank God that there are still some situations, still some commonalities between the church and the culture. But the point of our, in our text is this. The point here is that the church ought to be vigilantly practicing corrective discipline for all sins defined by Scripture 
and especially for those sins that the secular culture would not even tolerate. Because what kind of witness would we be giving off? What kind of witness would we be bearing if our moral standards appear to be even lower than the world's? That's a bad witness. And unfortunately, in, in, in many churches today, there is a bad witness being given because of the laxity concerning sins that even the world would condemn. And so this is why Paul is so shocked when he hears this report. Instead of, instead of feeling pride, they should be feeling grief, and yet they have it flipped around. And so it's unbelievable for Paul. Now, because he can't physically be there with them to deal with the situation, Paul hopes that this letter he's writing is going to act as a substitute. So he says that he is with them, maybe not physically, but I'm with you in spirit. And his, as his apostolic words are being read through this letter to the congregation, I am with you in spirit. Look at verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now notice what he says next. So an apostolic judgment has already been made, but notice how the local church still has a responsibility to exercise. Paul has already done his part, and you might think, oh, that's all you need to do. It's, it's the apostle Paul. He's already made his judgment. No, no, the, the, the church still has a job to do. Listen to verses 4 to 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what this means is that when it comes to church discipline, one man's decision is not enough, even when that one man is the Apostle Paul himself. The whole church needs to be involved when it comes to this kind of discipline. Members need to assemble in the name of the Lord and, and with the spirit behind Paul's written words in Scripture and with the power of the Lord Jesus present among us, the members are to remove this man from among them. Paul is urging the Corinthians to take swift and immediate action to put this man out. Now, you might be thinking, whoa, 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 slow down there, Paul. Isn't that a bit hasty? I mean, what about Matthew 18? What about what Jesus taught us? Aren't, aren't we supposed to approach this sinner privately at first and, and, and try to correct him, you know, with confidentiality? Don't tell anyone else about it. And if he says sorry, well, then we should just drop the matter and we shouldn't escalate it further. You know, some people are going to wonder, is, is Paul contradicting how Jesus taught us to handle sin in the church according to Matthew 18? Well, actually, I don't think there's a contradiction here. You see, Paul is dealing with a situation where you don't need to rely on private communication before telling it to the church because the entire church already knows about it. This is a public scandalous sin that the church knows about, and they're just doing nothing about it. That's the problem. So essentially, here in 1 Corinthians 5, we've already arrived at the last stage of church discipline as taught by Jesus in Matthew 18. Again, no contradiction. Now, what's so challenging in our text, though, is how to interpret certain phrases, like in verse 5, where Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, there's a lot written about how to understand what, he, what he's saying here. I, I don't think Paul was expecting or, or hoping for this man to be physically attacked or to be destroyed by Satan. 
I think he's telling the church members in the church of Corinth to excommunicate this man. That is, to expel him from their membership. I think that's what he's talking about. And what that simply means is to no longer affirm him or to treat him as a fellow citizen of God's kingdom. And the implication there is that if you were to do that, you are essentially turning that man back over to the world. And the world understood was, was, the, was the sphere of Satan. That the world was under Satan's sphere of influence. And so really to deliver him to Satan is another way of simply saying, put him outside the spiritual oversight and the spiritual, spiritual protection of the church and back into the world. That's, that's what Paul, I think, is saying here to the Corinthians. Now, let's be clear. I want you to be super clear here. Removing this man from, membership, from, his, from the membership of the church, removing him from the church, is not a declaration that he is certainly not a Christian. We can't see into his soul. We can't read his heart. We can't definitively know whether he has been truly regenerate, really been born again or not. But what excommunication does declare is that this congregation is no longer sure if this man is a Christian. We can't say anything definitively, but, but we don't think he's a Christian it says that we agree as a church that this man is behaving rather like a non-Christian. And until he repents like a Christian, we'll treat him as we would any other non-believer. That means he's, he's still welcome to our public services where we hope he's going to be confronted with the promises and demands of the gospel. But what this also means is that he should no longer participate in the privileges of membership. And that would include barring him from partaking in the Lord's Supper. That's one um, clear way of communicating that, and that's why historically it's been called excommunication, referring to the communion table. Now, I know in, to modern ears, all of that sounds harsh. It sounds cruel. But I hope you see that the purpose behind corrective church discipline is never to punish. It's always to redeem. Look at the end of verse 5. Why are you doing this? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, the hope here is that such a formal declaration by his church is going to serve as a wake-up call for this man. That by God's grace, he's going to repent. And he's going to put to death his fleshly desires. He's going to mortify the flesh. And I think that's what the destruction of the flesh there is likely referring to. Friends, it may not seem obvious to you. But it's redeeming love that compels any church to take such actions as described here. Now, I, I think parents out there, I, I think those of you who have raised children, I think you get it. I, I think you know that it's, it's love that compels our discipline for our own kids, right? I mean, imagine a father warning his toddler not to stick her fingers into an electrical socket, but, you know, she goes and does it anyways. Shrugging his shoulders and, and, and saying, oh, well, to each their own. That, that's, not, that's not a loving response. That's not what a loving parent would say. Not correcting dangerous and harmful behavior is not loving. It's indifferent at best. It's, it's hateful at worst. So listen to how Scripture describes our Heavenly Father 
and his heart towards his own children whenever we sin. Hebrews 12.6 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So if you are a son or daughter of the high king of heaven, it's out of love that you're being chastised or disciplined. And I think none of us would dare claim that we know how to love fellow Christians better than God himself. And so if, if his love for us includes discipline, well then I guess our love for each other ought to include the same. There ought to be discipline in the love that we share with each other. So the first expectation of a healthy church is that we are disciplining each other out of redeeming love. Here's the second expectation. We're exhorting each other to become whom to become who we really are. And that's Paul's point in verses 6 to 8 if you're following along. Now he he appeals here to an an analogy that illustrates both the problem and the solution in the church. Starting in verse 6, he points to leaven to illustrate the corrupting effects of undisciplined sin in the life of a church. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, leaven is simply fermented dough. And normally what you would do is you would save a little clump of last week's dough and you would just let it ferment. And that's, that's your leaven. It's, it comes from the previous week's dough. And then you would now add it to this week's dough. And that little clump, as it gets rubbed in, as it spreads about the new clump of dough, it's going to leaven the whole lump. That, that fermentation is going to go throughout the whole lump. And that's how you make you know, sourdough bread and, 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 and things like that. Paul's point is that any sin that's not corrected, that's not disciplined, will have a corrupting, spreading effect in the life of a church. Someone is probably going to argue, hey, come on, it's only one man that we're dealing with. It's only one man's sin. It's just an isolated case. But a little leaven will eventually spread throughout the whole dough. Now, for many of us, we've never baked bread in our lives, and so we have really no understanding of this analogy. So let me, let me give you another one that I think many of you, especially all of you in the medical profession, would understand. Think about a highly contagious virus. And you don't even need to be in medicine because all of us, we live in a post-pandemic world. We know how this works, right? Sin is like a virus that has infected the body of, of Christ here in this case in Corinth. Now, in a healthy body, the immune system is immediately going to kick in. It's going to deal with it. But if there's a systemic failure in the body's immune response, then that one isolated virus is going to continue to spread and spread and spread and eventually destroy the whole body altogether. So Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to remove this man not just out of love for him and concern for his salvation, but also you do it out of love for the body of Christ. We want God's church to continue as, as a new creation, as a holy temple, as, as set apart from the world, which is necessary for our mission to bless the world with the gospel that we've been entrusted with. 
The sad reality, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is that many of our non-Christian family and friends want little to do with Christ's gospel because Christ's church is such a mess. We bear a poor witness to the world. If we haven't put our own house in order, then we have lost our gospel distinctiveness. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our gospel mission, we've got to go back to it. And that's what Paul does for us in verse 7. He, he goes back to the gospel. Look there and notice the connection. In verse 7, the connection he makes with the Passover. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, every year the Israelites would celebrate the Passover meal to commemorate God's grace and God's power in redeeming them from Egypt. And in that celebration, that, that Passover meal, that's one day, Passover, it would bleed into a week-long celebration, a week-long holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where all meals during that week were served with unleavened bread. Now, in addition to all of that being a spiritual celebration, has spiritual significance for that holiday. If you think about it, the Feast of Unleavened Bread actually has a public health benefit. You see that process that I explained earlier of saving a clump of dough every single week over the course of an entire year, 52 weeks in a row, has a high chance of introducing contaminants into the dough. And you're just replacing it and doing it over and over again. So once a year, leading up to the Passover, to the start of this week-long feast, everyone was commanded to purge your home of all leaven. Any trace of leaven, get rid of it. And so families would just go on a search. They would do this every year as a family, looking throughout their home, looking in, in, for any trace of leaven in any drawer or cupboard, any crook or cranny. They're, they, you know, little kids are involved. They're just looking for leaven, and they're trying to get rid of it, throwing it out of the house. And after getting rid of all of it, then they would go an entire week, entire week eating only unleavened bread. And then afterwards... It's a new day. It's a new start. And they would restart that whole leavening process with a clean lump of dough. So with all that context in mind, look back at verse 7 with me. Paul's emphasis on the fact that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed is meant to imply that we should have already purged out our home. At this point, there should be no leaven among us. In other words, the church is a new batch of dough. We are a converted people, a holy people. We should be done with the old contaminated leaven of the world. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, Paul says. Now, Paul, as the preeminent apostle of the gospel of grace. He is quick to qualify what he just says. So, so that no one misinterprets him as saying, hey, get rid of the old so that you can be new. He quickly reminds them, you're already new as you really are unleavened. He's quick to add that. In other words, he's not telling you to do something to become something. 
but to do it because of who you already are. You see, friends, the moralism of this world says, do this so that you can become that. Do this and you'll become that. But the gospel of grace says the opposite. The gospel of grace says, do this because you already are that. Do this because you already are that. See, church, Paul's point is that our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, has already been sacrificed in our place. So Paul would claim that for all Christians, we already are unleavened. We already have been purified and cleansed. We already are a holy and redeemed people. So let's start behaving like who we really are. To tolerate sin in your own life or, or in the life of our church would be antithetical to who we are as Christians. That concept right there lies at the core of Paul's theology and the way he motivates Christians to live holy lives in all of his letters. Notice he's not appealing to fear or to shame in order to motivate you. He's not hoping Christians, you know, hoping you're going to deal with your sin or you better be afraid of some church discipline. Or he's not saying, you know, hey, hey, you better put off your sin in order to avoid the shame of getting put out of the church. It's not fear or shame he's appealing to. Notice Paul motivates our holiness by pointing to Christ and what he's already done for us on the cross. In light of Christ crucified for us, let's cleanse out the old leaven in our lives and in the life of our church. Let's become who we really are in Christ. That, my friends, is what the gospel of grace exhorts us to do. So we've talked about how a healthy church with a strong culture of discipleship is going to be a church that disciplines each other out of redeeming love and that exhorts each other to be who we really are. And lastly, a church that judges each other for the purity of our witness. That's Paul's point in verses 9 to 13. And notice how he's turning his attention to, to clarify a misunderstanding that, that stemmed from a previous letter he had written to them. Apparently, Paul had already talked about some of this, and he had already told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But now he wants to qualify that he wasn't referring to the people out there in the world, but specifically the people in the church. So listen to verses 9 to 11 again. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexually, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate Paul's clarification here because it's so important for us to state that a church's concern for its own purity should not result in a stance of hostility or separation from the world. Like if our pursuit of holiness is pulling us away from meaningful interactions with non-Christians, then we've missed the point of the church's holiness. God's people, whether you're talking about in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, have always been set apart from the world for the sake of our mission in the world. That's how it works. 
We are to be a witness to the non-believing world of the glory and the greatness of our king and his kingdom. How can we do that if we're always pulling away from them? So church, on a practical level, on a practical level, what this means is that Paul expects us There is an expectation from the apostle that we are having meaningful interactions with sexually immoral people, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters of this world. Now, I'm sure some of you are actually uncomfortable interacting with such people. You know, you you don't really know how to act around them or or what to talk about. And and on on one hand, that's a good sign. It means... You're a foreigner to this world and that your true heaven is not here. It's, your true home is not here. It's in heaven. That's a good sign if you sometimes feel like a foreigner interacting with this world. Because that's who you really are. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. But like any good missionary, your goal here on this earth, in this life, is to learn how to interact with people in this world without becoming of this world yourself. And that might first mean carving out some more time in your life, in your schedule, to spend it with non-Christian friends and colleagues and have that missionary mindset saying, I, I'm not, this is not really my home, but I'm going to learn how to interact and how to be a good witness here on foreign soil. That's what our missionaries do, and that's what we're called to do even in our lives here in Houston. But, you know, Paul's particular emphasis in this text is not actually on our personal witness as individual Christians, but notice how it's always focusing here on the corporate witness of the whole church. And so, friends, if there's going to be any separation, it should be a church separating, separating ourselves from those who call themselves Christian and yet persist in a clear lifestyle of sin with no repentance. Paul is not saying don't associate with with anyone who calls himself a Christian and yet is guilty of committing any one of these sins on my list. He's not saying if you see someone doing one of these things in this list, then just immediately put them out, immediately disassociate. No, I hope you, you understand he's not saying that The church should have just a bunch of perfect people that never sin. What he's describing here are people whose lives, sadly, are characterized by this sin that he's, whichever one. Again, it's not just sexual sin. He lists out more than that. You see, by their own refusal to repent, they've made it clear that they don't belong to the new dough of God's church. It's this continual unrepentance that would suggest that they are still filled with the old leaven of the old life. And so in regards to those individuals, Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. Now, that at least, at the very least, would mean not sharing the Lord's Supper with them. We've already covered that. Now, it's not as clear as to whether or not that's going to apply to privately eating with someone who has been put out of the church. I mean, this gets even more challenging when it could even be a family member, right? So the main principle, though, that you need to understand is that the church, the members of the church, what Paul is saying is the the members of the church should refrain 
from any kind of social interaction with the person that gives the impression that that person is in good standing with God and with his church. Again, Paul's main concern in this section is on the purity of the church's witness. And he commands us to separate from such individuals so that the watching world, you see how he's so concerned about the pagans around them, the watching world doesn't get this confusing message about the king and his kingdom. Paul is concerned about outsiders. He's not concerned that they're going to corrupt us if we interact with them too much. No, he's saying you should interact with them. You should be missionaries towards them. No, what he's concerned when it comes to outsiders is that we're going to confuse them. We're going to confuse them if we allow corruption to go unaddressed in the church. We're going to repel them by our hypocrisy. That's what he's concerned about. So look at verses 12 to 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I think it's sad how in our day, Christians just kind of flip Paul's words around. Where we can be very judgmental of the sins found in in the non-Christian world. And yet very tolerant of the sins found in our own churches. Shame on us if that's the case. So, let's, so church, let's, let's commit ourselves now. Let's make it our goal now to commit to the purity of the church and the clarity of our witness to the world. And what that's going to start with is by looking at yourself. Let's each of us take on individual responsibility to purify our own lives. Just like the Israelites, I challenge you to diligently search every crook and cranny of your heart for any trace of leaven. Let's begin by asking ourselves, are there any sins in my life that I have just grown far too comfortable with? What do I need to purge out of my own life? What do I need to purge out of our life together as the church so that we can bear clear witness to the power and the promise of the gospel, to the glory and the greatness of our king and his kingdom? What is our task? What is God revealing to us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this reminder of how important it is to be a holy church to have a holy witness for the sake of the watching world and ultimately for your own namesake. And so, Lord, help us to be a vigilant and diligent people, honest and open and applying the truths of the gospel to our lives on a daily basis. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.